great future. We're talking real money. Long ago, on a talk show far, far in the past, your host, Don McDonald, used to suggest that people use the funds from the American Century, at the time, 20th Century Fund Group in Kansas City. And uh, it's funny how things have come full circle because somewhere in there, somewhere along the way, uh, this guy named Paul Merriman sent me some information on on asset class investing and indexing and low-cost funds. And, well, you know, American Century Funds, they were active and they were pretty pricey. But something strange happened along the way. A new company started. A new company that started in conjunction with, as part of, the American Century Group. But these are asset class investors who use low-cost exchange-traded funds to offer investors academic research-based portfolios of exchange-traded funds that are well-diversified at reasonable costs, things that, well, the hosts of this iteration of Money Talk Show, me and Tom, Tom and me, uh, are, are big fans of. And so now we are now big fans of a, of a subsidiary of American Century Funds called Avantis. You've heard we heard us talk about them. A-V-U-V-A-V-G-E-A-V-D-V, all these A things. And uh, so we wanted to spend a little time talking to Avantis about some of the questions that you've asked us. So rather than hearing from us, we thought we would let you hear from them. And so joining us on the podcast today is that ever rare creature, a guest, we don't have a lot of guests. Um, and uh, he happens, just coincidentally, happens to work for uh, the Avantis Group. His name is Phil McGinnis, and he is the chief investment strategist at Avantis, a subsidiary of American Century. And Phil, welcome to Talking Real Money. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. I'm excited for this discussion. Yeah, we're hoping there's some oxygen left for you to breathe while we're doing this. So, uh, so okay, the question is <laughs> I'm just going to be quiet then, fine. <laughs> the question, because this comes up a lot, because we have been proponents of, as Don mentioned, of indexing, of low-cost sort of passive products, if you will, just give yourself exposure to various parts of the market. So if somebody came up off the street and said, hey, tell us what you do for a living, would you tell people that you are in the business of actively managed money or passively managing money? If somebody came up to me on the street and asked me, I would say we're in the business of actively managed money. All right. Now the big question. Here's the problem, Phil. Here's the problem. We have been telling people to avoid active funds because in our vernacular, Active means picking stocks, timing the market, moving in and out at the will and the whims of the managers and their analysts. Isn't So why would Avantis be active? Are you the chief investment strategist sitting around every day going, oh, I think we should buy Walmart. I think we should buy Apple. Sure. So, well, and you didn't ask me how, how long I would spend explaining to somebody on the street what, what it is that we do and why and all that, right? It was just if they asked me, what would I say? And so starting there, right, the idea around 
what is it that we're trying to accomplish as we create an investment strategy? What are we hoping to help an advisor and investor achieve over the long term? Those are pretty key ingredients to the idea of how we think about designing a strategy, implementing it, you know, managing it through time. And so I think that the semantics around active investing, passive investing, it really is the devil is in the details, right? And so it's important to get into this notion of what is it that you're doing on an ongoing basis? Why have you constructed the strategy that way? And then how does it help you achieve the outcomes that you're looking for? So so as an example, just as an example, if you look at the growth in index-based investing, right, and it's grown significantly since, since the 70s, if you look at where the vast majority of that growth has come from, it has not come from people buying the market, right? It has come from people buying different segments, components of the market. So those can be sectors, those can be asset classes, as you said, those can be regions. And so as you start looking across some of those different index providers, maybe around a, a similar asset class, something like U.S. large cap value, you actually can see some very big differences even among indexes that are tracking that same asset class, so to speak. And I'm putting using quotation marks there. So so given that, right, the idea around just active or just passive or even just labeling something U.S. large value or U.S. small value, in my opinion, it's not sufficient to really understand what's going on underneath the hood and why should I or shouldn't I be interested in having it as part of my portfolio. And so, I mean, what I'm hearing a bit is people shouldn't necessarily pay attention then to the word that you just mentioned, labels. Uh, I think labels can be helpful, but I think you do need to go further. You know, you you look, you, you all have been in this business a while, right? You think about the the concept of like growth and income, right? That was a, a label of a lot that a lot of funds had. And you'd say, well, what does that actually mean? What is, what's the investment strategy to implementing? What kind of stocks or bonds are, are you buying and why, right? The, it, it's a label. It, it can... It, it can become a definition. It can be something that, that everybody associates a meaning with, but it might not really tell you what's going on in the fund. Here's the real world dilemma, though, for me as a as a talk show host, as a podcaster. Um, we know our audience really, really, really well, and we know that they crave simplicity. They crave an easy answer. They crave labels. All you have to do is listen to Dave Ramsey and he says growth and income still to this day, despite the fact that it is a nebulous term, we're fighting the battle where a caller will call in and say, I have a hundred thousand dollars. What should I do with it? It's, you know, I want a simple answer. Give it to me now. Should I index or should I be active? That's really what it's. So get a a long way to the question. Can we come up with better labels? Do you think? That's a good question. Um, you know, I, it, it just as, as an anecdote, so I, I spend a lot of time working with the folks at, at Morningstar, right, who uh, do a lot of work in terms of helping uh, the investor kind of sift through, right, and, and giving them categories, peer universes to, uh, to uh, compare things against and the like. And even then, as, as we talk about what we do, do we, do we get covered by the, the active mutual fund analysts or the passive mutual fund analysts or ETF analysts? They, they end up, they have both. And even then we get into debates around semantics and some of this vernacular. So it is, even for folks who are, are in it all the time, it is uh, something that is still is still complex and requires that specificity, that precision. Around you know, good labels, I would say the, the shortcut for me is go to the expenses, 
right? Are you comfortable paying whatever that expense ratio is uh, for, for the investment? Where does that expense ratio fall in terms of the category? That's a great place to start. And okay, so what? What then? Give us a number. I mean, because you could go buy the S and P five hundred for zero. Um, what emerging markets for fifty basis? I mean, what are the what are the numbers people should pay attention to? So, and so when we think about our strategies, our strategies range from fifteen basis points to thirty six basis points, right? So, fifteen base a basis point is one one hundredth of a percent. Uh, so, so point one five percent to point three six percent. Um, that's that's for the strategies we offer. That's where they are today. I feel like those are pretty darn competitive. How about the term actively passive? <laughs> passively aggressive active? I don't know. Passively yeah, aggressive. Pass, passive aggressive. There you go. Yeah. I don't think yeah. that works either. I've been, I've been called that before, but I don't know that it has anything to do with how it's, we manage This is money. not different that kind of, kind of show, show. Phil. Totally yeah. different. Yeah. Uh, let's see. Let me. Is the doctor in? Checking. Oh, no. The doctor's not in yet. So. Yeah. Uh, um, no, I think, you know, I it's – and, and I, I certainly um, – I can empathize with people, right? The the idea. So so one anecdote that I talk about when we think about investing and how uh, complex and and difficult it can be. When when I think for me, I think about if I'm going to get my oil changed, the you know every three months or six months or whenever it is, right? Uh, whenever the the uh, flashing light goes off for me in the car, that 15 minutes between when I drop that car off and I'm in the the waiting room before they call me out to say that it's done. I have significant anxiety because I know what's going to happen is every once in a while, they're going to knock on the window and they're going to call me out there, right? They're going to call me out and they're going to have mm-hmm. the hood open and they're going to say, you know, they're, they're going to point at the filter and they're going to look at that look air at me, filter. Right? Yeah. yeah. Right. Uh, don't do you think it needs to be changed? And I look at them like, I don't, I don't know. I'm, that's why I'm here. If you tell me it needs to be changed, then I'm going to trust you. Right. Like that's Ask the, me about I, an exchange traded fund. I'll give you an yeah, answer. Exactly. There you go. Uh, but if I come back th- three months from now and you you do the same thing to me, then I'm going to know that you're playing with me, right? That I didn't need a new one every every three months. So I know that. I know enough for that. But the way I think about that is that's sort of my anxiety, and that's something that I don't understand very well. But if if I get it wrong, I'm out sixty bucks or whatever it is, right? That's not nothing, but it's it's something I'm I'm going to be fine. When you think about people's investments, the amount of of responsibility that we have for folks that are working to save over really a lifetime, whether that's for retirement or for their their kids' college or whatever it is, something else they're they're uh, passionate about from a charitable perspective, that's a huge responsibility that we have, and so. I don't want to, you know, not to dismiss it out of hand, but but that idea around, I, I think for people, it, it for me, it's you have to be okay asking questions that you're uncomfortable with. You have to be okay asking the the, the tough questions because otherwise, it's just really easy, I think, to kind of take a, a shortcut that probably isn't the best decision. Let me change a little bit here because uh, the other question we seem to get a lot of is mutual funds versus exchange traded funds. Um, I find in that debate hard to support mutual funds over exchange traded funds. I got to ask, I mean, is it over in the longer haul for the mutual fund industry? Is everything going to be moving to exchange traded funds due to their you know, again, buying the right ones, low expense ratios, but the tax benefits you get from owning ETFs over mutual funds. What's your take on that? I think you hit the nail on the head, really. Um, uh, it's something we've seen, right? You look over the last three years in terms of equity mutual funds, equity ETFs, 
the, the round number I have in my head is about one and a half trillion out of equity mutual funds, one and a half trillion in to equity ETFs, right? And so I think that part of that might be the the idea that you see lower expenses, you tend to see more broad diversification. So it could be some of those elements that are contributing to that. But that main one, that ETF for a taxable investor, that ETF is a is a better vehicle. There's, it's really hard for somebody to get on the other side of that debate, right? Um, that in-kind create redemption mechanism. I know I'm using some jargon there, but there's just the structure is better if you're looking to uh, uh, pay less taxes or control when it is that you pay taxes. Um, and that is something that is not going to change. Okay. On that same note, explain in the simplest terms you possibly can, how an ETF, I think a lot of people do not understand. You talked about the in-kind and the, how does an ETF differ from a mutual fund? Sure. All right. So you guys challenge me on this because I'm I'm going to use jargon. I'm going to try not to, but I'm going to use jargon. The, the, the best way that I can categorize it is that a mutual fund, right? So both, both the mutual fund and the ETF are in the 40-act structure, right? So they're 40-act funds. Now, a mutual fund. The right, investors, the active. investment company act of 1940. I just want to, Correct. for 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 all of you Don listening was, at home. Don was there for the original signing, I think, <laughs> weren't you, with the with President Roosevelt? No, that was okay. great. It was really great. Yeah, you know, um, he was quite the guy. That, <laughs> quite the uh, guy. All right, 1940 Frank, uh, act. Go. You I got called it. him Frank. You know, I did. We, <laughs> hey, Frankie, sign Frankie, this. Okay, yeah. yeah okay. Frankie D. Yeah. Um, so. So mutual funds are, are a cash in cash out business, right? So if I want to buy a mutual fund tomorrow, right, I can, uh, or if, if I want to get, you know, NAV today, the net asset value at 4 PM today at, at market close, right? I go enter an order. I say, I want a thousand dollars worth of, of mutual fund XYZ, whatever it is. And I'm going to get that net asset value at the end of the day. So I'll get the equivalent amount of shares that gets me that, you know, around thousand dollars worth. Um, so it's cash in, cash out, right? So, so if I'm a portfolio manager managing that mutual fund, I either see a cash balance at the end of the day. If I have to, I have investors, more investors who just subscribe than redeem. So I need to go spend that cash and invest it. Or I have more investors leaving than coming in. So there's a, a redemption. So I've, I've got to go, go sell securities to raise cash, right? That's what I have to do as a portfolio manager. So there's cash that is being affected into capital markets. That's the mutual fund. And the ETF, you have a party that sits in between, right? They're an authorized participant, but it's a, it's a broker, right? And so if you want to buy into an ETF, you have cash, but there are these middlemen, right? These brokers that are sitting there. And if, if we're managing an ETF, we have a list of securities that we're willing to accept if somebody wants to subscribe, right? If somebody wants, wants in, or we have a list of securities that will deliver if they want to redeem, if they want out. And so in that case, that's what we call in-kind. So it's the create redemption mechanism that's happening in-kind where we're delivering shares of stocks or we're receiving shares of stocks. So there is not that same cash. So what that means was is because under the 40 Act, if I realize capital gains, if I sell a security and realize capital gains, I have to pass on those capital gains to the shareholders of the fund. But in the ETF, because we're actually just delivering the stocks out, we are not selling, then you're not realizing that capital gain. So what that's allowing you to do, if you're sort of the investor who's wanting to sit there for the long term, since we are 
basically delivering those securities as opposed to selling them and not realizing the capital gain, you don't have the capital gains distribution, the ETF, like you tend to see in a mutual fund. It doesn't mean that an ETF can never pay a capital gain distribution. If you have somebody that has, you know, a, a lot of turnover in a strategy or that there are there are reasons why it can happen, but if you're doing your job right, you shouldn't need to pay a capital gain distribution. Which brings so that me would to be a an point active about- strategy, then, right? <laughs> would <Yeah>. be an- <laughs> <laughs> that one we can clearly say. Uh, this is another question that seems to come up from time to time, and that is uh, bid and ask the spread uh, because people write us and say, "Well, you know, I want to buy these exchange traded funds. Is the right time of day to do this? Is the right method?" And from time to time, you know, obviously huge exchange traded funds, the bid ask spread is tiny, but you get into some smaller issues and it can be kind of large. Is that something investors should pay attention to? I think they should pay attention to it for sure. And um, the the way liquidity works in ETFs, there's, there's really two markets, right? So there's the primary market and the secondary market. The secondary market is what you see uh, on screen. If you look at, you know, sort of the volume, the um, the order book on on either side, right? So um, there's also what, what is called, called or referred to as primary market where more shares can actually be created. Uh, so that's that again, that can happen with that market maker sitting in between. They can deliver securities and create new shares in, in the ETF. Uh, so there's a lot more liquidity that meets the eye in a lot of ETFs uh, than I think most people realize if they just look at something like an average daily volume. But if you're an investor and you're thinking about transacting in ETFs, yeah, I, I think you should pay attention to the bid-ask spread. There are times a day, uh, so really close to the market open, just as you see st- uh, spreads tend to be wider in individual stocks. Spreads tend to be wider in ETFs really close to that market open. Same thing right at the close, the last few minutes before the close, right? I, if it's my my own personal recommendation, I would say you kind of avoid those two times. But if you get more sort of into the middle of the day, um, for for most ETFs, I think that should be fine. The other thing to think about with ETFs is, generally speaking, they're going to be reflective of the spreads of the underlying stocks. So if you have an ETF that is mostly in small caps, as an example. Generally, it's going to have wider spreads than an ETF that is just in large cap stocks, because all those small cap stocks that make up, you know, that basket of securities are going to have wider spreads than those ones that are in large cap. So that's another thing to kind of keep in mind if you're trying to compare apples to apples, so to speak. Let's talk a little bit about Avantis. Avantis believes uh, in a strategy, an investment idea that is very, very similar to that uh, proposed many years ago by dimensional funds and David Booth, not coincidentally, because your CEO was formerly the, had the same job at dimensional funds. What is the strategy and how does yours differ from dimensionals? Uh, those are great questions. So yeah, there's, you know, Eduardo spent time uh, at Dimensional or several of us that spent time at, at Dimensional Fund Advisors have a ton of respect for that organization, for David. Uh, they've they've done so much, I think, for, for the industry. Um, from our perspective, you know, we thought we had an opportunity to really embrace that that ETF vehicle, right? That was something as we were starting out, we, we offered both mutual funds and ETFs. And the idea was, you all, whoever is is sort of choosing, you pick the vehicle that works well for you, and we're going to have the underlying sound investment strategy that you know where we think we we can add value. Um, the the investment strategy itself, I would say, if you if you kind of look at you know the full spectrum of 
um, investment strategies that are out there of going and buying a single stock, you know, on one end of the spectrum to going and buying the entire stock market, right? And, and the other buying just your little slice of, of the entire market. Obviously, I would say both dimensional and us lean toward that one that's closer to the market than just the individual stocks. So um, there are concepts that we have in common with dimensional that we also have in common with a lot of index funds. So those are low fees. Those are broad diversification. Those are the elements, you know, caring about tax efficiency, uh, transparency. Uh, so the, the ETFs we manage, they're transparent active. Uh, we disclose holdings each day. So all those things are going to be pretty similar, whether you look at us or you look at a lot of index funds or you look at somebody like dimensional. You start to get into more nuances around what's different if you think about the concept of what really is value. So I would say, you know, at the end of the day, I consider what we do to be value investing. And when we think about that definition of value, you can have many different definitions of value. If you look back through the academic literature, if you, you know, talk to practitioners and for us, if we're thinking about value, if I'm looking at sort of two companies, two stocks and saying, where can I identify the most value using current prices and current fundamentals? For us, it's important to be considering both sides of the equation. We want information from the balance sheet of the company. But right at the same time, we need to consider information from the income statement, statement of cash flows. We need to look at all that together. So if I've got a dollar to invest, I want to maximize the share of equity and the share of profits that I'm getting for that dollar. Right. Mm -hmm. So that's our definition of value. And that's a little bit more. It's a little bit different. It's a little bit more, um, um, in my in my opinion, sort of modern than looking at something in isolation, something like just a price to book ratio or just a book to market ratio for, for a stock. And I got to ask you one qu final question for me is uh, right now, obviously, we've gone from mutual funds to exchange traded funds, as you said, big money moving out of one into the other. But the the the, the other sort of investment de jour today, it seems to me as, as a somewhat insider is separately managed accounts or direct indexing. Is that going to be the future? Is that the hot thing that we should all be paying attention to? So direct indexing, it's definitely very top of mind, right? Um, direct indexing is sort of that new label for separately managed accounts. I, I'm, I'm very glad that you said those together because I think direct in indexing really has come back as a marketing term of something that has been around for a long time known as, as SMAs. It's just kind of got this new fancy term to it. And so um, we, we offer uh, SMAs. I'll be clear about that. We, we think there are uh, times where uh, there's investor circumstances where that separately managed account can make sense. The main thing that we find people are looking for is one of two things. One, customization. So there's certain sectors or certain stocks or whatever they don't want to hold. And they want their own view, right, of, of their values, their beliefs being reflected there. And that's a lot harder to do in a commingled vehicle, right? I, I, I equate it to, you know, if, if the three of us are going out to dinner, then we can probably find a place that works for all of us. If you've got 600 people that are going out for dinner, finding a place that works for all of them is, is art because people have different tastes and preferences and things. So with the SMA, you can have more control over I want this in or I don't want this in, right? So that's one thing. The other piece of it is the idea around having more, a little bit more flexibility on something like tax loss harvesting, right? So as an example, if you're in, you know, uh, an ETF or a mutual fund, what happens? Well, you buy in at, you know, the share price of, of uh, the, the net asset value of uh, that vehicle, and you only have sort of one line item there, right? 
So I could buy an S&P 500 index ETF for mutual fund, and I'm just going to have one one line item. So my unrealized gain or realized gain or, or unrealized loss, right? Those are all just going to be reflective off of that one NAV. Whereas if you bought the 500 stocks that make up the S&P 500, right, then I have different line items. I've got 500 line items. Some could be at a gain, some could be at a loss. And so what the SMA allows you to do is you have a little bit more flexibility in where can I maybe realize some losses, bank those and set those aside and hopefully get to use them in the future. That's that's why people are interested in this concept, right? It's that I can get quote unquote tax alpha. The issue that I have is that I feel like they've sort of been oversold. And I, when I when I say that, I'm not saying that there aren't circumstances where they can be appropriate, but if you think about, you know, what you what type of or investor profile you need to be able to take advantage of that quote unquote tax alpha, you have to have capital gains that are externally generated from, you know, from a different part uh, than your investment account in order to really be able to take advantage of that quote unquote tax alpha. And so I think for, you know, it's my opinion that for the vast majority of investors, something like an ETF makes a lot more sense. A lot easier too. All right. I have one Final question from me. I'm going to throw you into the ring with a couple of pecuniary pugilists or money fighters. Uh, there's, and I'm sure you know these guys. Uh, there's a gentleman by the name of Rick Ferry who is in the Boglehead camp. And in this corner, we have Larry Swedro, who's in the evidence-based investing camp. They have been having a little battle recently. In fact, it came to our show this last week um, where Rick Ferry kind of, well, he said basically that uh, when you find a factor and you start using it, it stops working. And his evidence is that over the last 20 years, value-based investing has not worked as well as just straight indexing, buying the market. How do you answer this fight, sir, I'm going to throw you right in the middle of the battle. <laughs> well, I, I, I guess I'm going to get uh, beat up a little bit, right? I got to be ready to be bruised. But um, so from from my perspective, the, the market portfolio is not a bad portfolio. I think it's a fine portfolio. Um, but the idea that, so the concept of a value premium in my mind, right? The, the, the concept of a value premium can identify value. Unless we agree that every single stock that's out there in the marketplace has basically the same weighted average cost of capital, right? Or the same expected return. If we, if, if we can agree that there are differences in discount rates that, uh, so, so the discount rate that investors are assigning to expected future cash flows for stocks, if we can agree that there are differences among those, which I think we can, I think it's a very unreasonable state of the world to think that every stock has the same expected return. You've got the motivation for a value premium. It's the idea that the company with the lower price relative to fundamentals has a higher expected return. And so in my mind, again, it's, it's, it's that risk return trade off. Intuition, it, it I kind of yeah. makes well, sense. Well, it's it's just an unreasonable state of the world to think that they all have are being assigned the same discount rate, and so that concept of the sort of the motivation for the value premium, then it gets into how do you identify it? Can you rebalance effectively? Can you know you take advantage of of its existence? That gets back to the devil is in those implementation details, right? Uh, so if you look at something as rudimentary as like a Russell 2000 value index 
you might not really see it, right? Something that's rebalanced only once a year, that's only using price to book ratio to decide is it a value stock or not. That's that's not really a, uh, sufficient in, in our minds uh, to, to manage a good portfolio and to be able to deliver something like that. So I absolutely think that it can be additive for, for a portfolio, right? We, we did a study, it's been a couple of years since we, uh, refreshed it, but we could go back and refresh it. I, so when we did it, there had never been a 20-year time frame in, in the U.S. where stocks had lost to T-bills, um, just as there had never been a 20-year period where small cap value stocks had lost to the market. Now, within those 20-year periods, you get some painful, you can have some painful drawdowns relative to, but you still had never had a 20-year a, a window. So um, I still am a believer that if, if you've got an equity allocation, right, and you're willing to take on the volatility of equities to begin with, having some small cap value in there absolutely makes some sense. It's a technical knockout for Rick Ferry. He's on the mat, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, can only <laughs> We can only hope, yeah. So hold him down. Uh, this, the, uh, do me a favor, Phil, when you get that new study, I know you're going to do it now that you're thinking about it. Please send it to us. We love that Absolutely. kind of stuff. Absolutely. Phil McInnes, the uh, chief investment strategist. That means he's the head of he's the head of all the other investment strategists. He sits on a crown there. You can see them. it. It's he's got he, the he throne he's there, like, right there, yeah. ready to go. Lovely, and I love the love the love the crown and the headdress. The whole thing. It really looks, looks perfect. Good on you. Uh, we really, truly appreciate you coming on and helping us understand some of this stuff and c- kind of explain the, uh, the, this whole process of, of building these portfolios, because I think most people sit around and go, it's like, it's beyond me. And I think you explained it really well. Thank you so much. Uh, he's from Avantis funds. Do you still have funds? We do. We do. We have okay. both. All yep. we talk ETFs. about are your ETFs. That's all we yeah. talk about. <laughs> I don't even know you have them. Uh, thank you so much for being a part of Talking Real Money. Tom, anything else? No, thank you for joining us. And again, uh, we'll just say it publicly aloud. We really, we love the product. We love uh, what you guys are doing there. And uh, we'll be watching. We'll be watching for the future. See what else comes really? out of your uh, little research kitchen there. Yeah, we will be. Of course <laughs> That's we all we will, ever so. do is sit and watch oh. these other guys. That's a good point. Well, good we, point. We, we appreciate it. We, it's, I think it's we're at about twenty three billion in assets under management today, and we've the first ETF that we launched was back in September twenty nineteen. So we're about three and a half years in, a little more than that. So good progress so far, but we got a lot more work to do. This is a long term uh, kind of well, deal, as you all know. You guys, as you know, top of our list. Thank you so much. Thank you. Uh, I'm Don. Sitting over there is Tom, and uh, we will be back really soon. Talking real money. You realize that the information provided on Talking Real Money is for informational, educational, and hopefully enjoyable purposes only. Providing personalized financial planning or investing advice takes time, so please consult with a really good fee-only fiduciary investment, tax, or legal advisor. We know a good one. Investing must always involve risk. In other words, you can and probably will lose money at times. Also, as much as you want it, no one can accurately and consistently predict the future, so past performance doesn't tell you a darn thing about what the future will bring. Unlike many other programs that say something similar, Talking Real Money is not trying to get you to buy or sell any financial products or securities. Instead, the program is provided as a public service by Appella Capital, a fee-only registered investment advisor. Thanks for listening, and please visit TalkingRealMoney.com for more information and disclosures. As you keep the lawyers happy.